0: Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. How you doing, Sean? Good. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. How are you, man? Good. How are you all doing tonight? Doing well. Peachy. (laughs) <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we're running low on questions, so get the questions in. Don't forget to do that. Uh, if you would like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of breaking you this podcast. We want to welcome the, today's new patrons of Tony F. and James Lunsford. Please go to patreon.com forward slash if you would like to show your support. And stay tuned to the end of the episode to hear what we've got going on in our own shops. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what's your first question?
1: All right. My first question is from Tony from Atlanta. And he says, hey, guys, I just joined Patreon to show some support. Thank you. Uh, It is kind of a long question, but I'll I'll take one snippet of of, or one part of his question. He talks about uh, where he actually exchanged a Felder 531 sliding table saw for saw stop cabinet saw. And he says, first, I own a large 27 by 43 inch INCRA router table. It takes up a lot of space. Is it worth getting rid of of the table and getting the built-in router table option on a saw stop? I realize I probably will lose the INCRA fence, but I could get back significant room. This is interesting because I actually do something very similar where I put my router table on the extension wing of my table saw.
2: I thought you had a, I thought you had a separate table, router table.
1: No, no, it is on the extension wing of my, uh, table saw. It's just that I have a 52 inch fence. So it kind of looks like, you know, you, you don't normally, when I photograph it or whatever, you don't normally see the cast iron of the table saw. But one thing that I will warn you about is that you do lose a little bit of access around the router table if it is too long, right? So if it's long enough where it's actually taking up a significant amount of space in your shop, You might actually lose some access along the end. And that becomes a little bit problematic, particularly when you're sort of routing larger pieces and you want to sort of maneuver those pieces uh, along the end of the router table. Uh, I don't have that option because I have my router table on the extension wing. I'm kind of limited to either one side of the router table or the other. I'm not, I, I can't, I don't have access to the end. The other thing that I want to mention is that I have an older Incra router fence and I love that thing. You know, I haven't used a router fence other than the Incra, so I really can't talk about maybe either the Jessam or maybe even the router tables that use the fence on the table saws. I've seen some people use like attachments and whatnot. But I really like the accuracy of the INCRA router fence because of its repeatability. So I would say if you need to save the space and build it into the extension wing of the table saw, I would highly recommend in some way if you can keep that INCRA router fence because they're really good. He talks a little bit later about another question pertaining to the INCRA router fence, but I'll save that for another week. Now, Sean and Guy, I think both of you guys have dedicated router tables, correct? Yes, indeed. I'll ask Sean first. Do you feel like maybe you'd ever consider putting it in the extension wing of your table saw?
0: I went back and forth before I built my current router table on whether or not to put it in the extension table. And I just couldn't get it to work with where the dust collection drops were from the ceiling. And the other place that my saw typically is, is up against the wall, which is where it's at right now. And there's no way that I could... Uh, could use it right there, um, so I was very limited on that. Um, I would like to have it at the end to save space, but ultimately, I now moved my table back up against the wall, my table saw that is. So I, it just it wouldn't work for me. Um, but if you look at SawStop, has some pretty cool accessories and their own setup. Um, I know it's rather expensive, and um, I think some of the parts are proprietary on what you can use and, uh, Their their lift. And stuff. So you may want to want to look into that, um, or just go the route of building your own. But it's a nice addition if you have room for it.
2: Their lift looks like a Jessam.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I think is it. Well, wait a minute.
1: I don't think the Jessam has the chain like the go kart chain that goes around it.
2: Oh, uh, Saucy has a chain.
1: Yeah, there's a chain that goes around it that uh, just lift, but with two years. It's like
2: that's like the General used to have.
1: Maybe, maybe that's very possible. Yeah. I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure. Uh, let me check really quick just to make sure.
2: I didn't mean to cut you off, Sean.
0: That's all right. Just take a look, a real hard look at what SawStop offers for their table saws. Look at the price. Uh, just make sure that it's going to be, um, what you want universal enough for other accessories and then compare that to building your own. if you have the room, Cool. If your dust collection and all that stuff works out for you, it'll definitely save you some space. And to get back to that question
1: about the router lift, the saw stop router lift, it does have a chain. It's a four post. It it looks pretty beefy. I mean, it has a nice
2: That's that's like the general has. Mm. I'm wondering if they make it for them. Yeah, I, don't I don't know. I
1: don't know. I don't know. know. I
2: don't know either. I see the benefit in saving valuable floor space with having a router in the extension wing of your table. Mm -hmm. The only thing with that is, I mean, you have to make sure that you have uh, legs holding up that end. So you you, you lose a little bit of mobility on your saw unless you Mm -hmm. build some kind of like custom thing. I've thought about it and I really like having a separate router table mainly because I don't have to, I mean, it's bad enough where I've got my a part of my assembly table is my outfeed table. And every time I start building something, it's like I got to constantly keep in mind that I have to keep that clear in case I need to use the table saw again. Right. It's the same thing with the router table and that fence
1: mm-hmm.
2: that, you know, the, the, the fence you're actually using, maybe an auxiliary one or you're using the actual, table saw fence and with some kind of attachment on it and you're not going to get the repeatability that you would on let's say like using an incra fence which I really love mm-hmm. so I mean there's pros and cons to both I can see it where you're saving some space mm-hmm. but to me even in my shop you know I'm just in a two-car garage just like 90% of all the people listening to this podcast are and i actually have two router tables
1: i don't know how you have the space man <laughs> I I, i'm
2: i'm pretty creative it gets pretty creative in there but i've got you know a shop full of full size equipment you know there's nothing mini or anything else i like having the separate router table i use my router table a lot yeah so having that and having the repeatability of the anchor fence and not having to Forsake one machine for the other while I'm using the other I think is a big benefit to me so, sure sure yeah. so Sean you went from an anchor fence well albeit an older
0: that was a knockoff anchor, pinnacle but it was like well, the anchor yeah. yeah
2: yeah to a, to a, a non anchor fence how do you how was the change for you um
0: if I had the the setup I would prefer the anchor fence meaning that if I had the table orientation Like my old one, I would definitely have kept the anchor fence over what I have now, one hundred percent. The fence that you have now, and we don't need
1: to mention like specific brands or whatever, but uh, the one that you have now is—is it where you can actually like move just one side of the fence to sort of make minute adjustments? Is that
0: correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah, I liked the, um, you know, just the, and mine was not an anchor, so I don't, I didn't have that same uh, precision, although it was. Pretty close, but being able to dial it in and barely move it in the micro adjustments and stuff, it's so much better than, you know, lock one side down, pivot the other side, get close, loosen it, move it again, tighten it down. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's just something about the anchor fences that are really nice. If you have the room and the table configuration for it, I mean, I definitely would prefer it over what I have now. Yeah.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. Cool. Well, Guy, you have the next one.
2: All right. This one comes from Joey and he says, sharpening versus replacing. I'm still running straight knives on my planer and joiner and always wondered what makes more sense between the two. The local Rockler and Woodcraft stores often send away sharpening for these and all other blades and bits. It's about $20 to $25 for a set of blades to get sharpened, but they're about the same to just replace them. I could be just getting the uh, cheaper blades as they're not carbide tipped or anything special. What are your thoughts? Uh, I know t- table saw, miter saw blades are different and seem to last longer. What, what were your methods before going to helical? Everything. So, yeah, I, I have helical on both my joiner and planer, but there was a time, obviously, when I did mm-hmm. not. And at that time, there was no <clears throat> carbide-tipped blades that you could get for your joiner and planer. They were just high-speed steel But they were a lot thicker than they are now. I know like on like the DeWalt four posts, those blades are disposable. Yeah. And you flip them. But on my older DeWalt lunchbox player, they were not. They were the thicker steel and you could actually get them sharpened. And I sharpened them myself. And what I have had, and I still have as a matter of fact, is this. And I, I bought it, you know, 20 plus years ago. It's a Makita wet wheel sharpener.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It has a disc that runs around flat, right? Yeah.
2: Yep. And it was designed to sharpen joiner and planer knives. Mm-hmm. And it was really expensive. I, I, I still have it. Um, and that's what I used for years. I always kept one set sharp and a set got dull. I would just change them out, mm-hmm. um, and then sharpen the, the blades on that thing. Uh, and that's mainly because I lived in a very, when I, when I bought, I lived in a very rural community mm-hmm. and there was nothing local. Uh, and there wasn't the, the internet as big as it is now right. back in the late nineties. Mm-hmm. So as far as the joiner knives go, yeah, I probably said there's a lot, like some jigs and stuff to sharpen them. I mean, even while they're on the, the thing, Mm-hmm. And those don't work. I've tried them.
1: I, I use the ones where you take the joiner blade off. Veritas makes a version of this. It's like a, a jointer blade sharpener and you put it on a piece of plate glass and you've got like, you know. Like a honing guide? Yes, like a honing guide. Uh, have you have you tried anything like that? Because I, I use that and it worked no. relatively fine.
0: Yeah, I, have a, I bought that for the jet before I swapped the head out. It worked. I just cannot get consistent results with it. And it's probably operator error, definitely, but mm-hmm. it just it wasn't the same as getting fresh blades. Sure, sure. The only reason why I say that is cuz
1: he he might be able to get a little bit. I mean, listen, 20 some dollars sharpening versus versus replacing. I mean, you might be getting to a point where it's like you know, it's a cost of convenience, right? So, either way, it's still going to cost you the same amount of money. Yeah. So why not just why not just replace them? Right. So sharpening versus replacing. But in this case, maybe you even uh, in between a replacement or sharpening, you know, just to get a little bit more life out of those blades. I used to sharpen mine and I had a joiner that required that had straight knives for about two years. And I think out of those two years, I might have sharpened the blades like twice.
0: Yeah, in the same way.
2: You know, he's saying twenty to twenty-five dollars for a set of blades to get sharpened, and they're about the same just to replace them. Man, that's pretty cheap for a set of blades to buy new ones—twenty to twenty-five dollars. Yeah. The carbide ones that he's referring to, they were—I remember them being like forty or fifty dollars a set. Uh, the high-speed steel ones, maybe twenty to thirty dollars. Yeah but you know, my, my memory isn't what it used to be.
0: Well, and even then, if you look on like Grizzly's website for their replacement six inch joiner blades, you're still going to spend 50 bucks. So I'm not sure. First of all, it would help us if we knew like what model planer and joiner, if you look, you know, that may help us a little bit, but looking on Grizzly, I was thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're $49. So if I were to spend $25 just thinking about me uh, to get it sharpened at like my local woodcraft, and I still have to drive 25 minutes away one way. I would just rather, you know, buy an extra set, and then if I'm ever at woodcraft, drop them off to have the second set sharpened. But mm. I definitely would not drive there, spend 25 dollars, and then when I can buy a brand new set for 49. Well, he, wasteful. He, here's another thing. He he also
1: he does put in a stipulation. I could be just getting the cheaper blades as they're not carbide. So let's, let's flip it around. Let's say you have carbide blades. I mean, carbide blades are going to be much more, more expensive to buy and replace, you know, versus sharpening probably about twice, right? So twice as much. So, you know, at what point, how many sharpenings do you go in and by which, you know, you, you end up replacing them, I guess, right? Because there, there comes a point of no return.
0: Yeah. If I just did a quick search. Uh, I mean, what are those eighty to one hundred fifty to two hundred dollars? Depend again. We don't know what size joiner or planer. If yeah. now if we're speaking that kind of money, definitely I'm going to send them off and have them sharpened.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But if it's
0: twenty to twenty five, no, I'm not. I'll just yeah. buy another set and then while I'm at Woodcraft one day, I'll drop the second set off and come back and get them.
1: See, I never, I never did the math on that. I just sharpened them like twice before I actually sold the machine. But I'm very positive that the knives that I had in my joiner uh, were were high speed steel. Um, because I mean, I was just Mom too. Yeah, yeah. So uh, now that I think about it, it's like, man, I could have avoided having to sharpen them, just buy new ones, right?
2: Yeah. So I, I guess, Joy, the 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 answer is it really depends on you know, a what your budget is, and and b how often you have to have them sharpened.
0: Yeah, that's that's a good point. How often?
2: that's that's really why I went with the helical head, mainly because they are carbide tipped and I mean I went like two years before I even started to worry about changing the or flipping the the heads on the carbide ones mm-hmm. well on the high speed steel one high speed steel joiner and planer, maybe twice a year mm-hmm. put a fresh set of blades in hmm
0: I was doing about one once a year, yeah, about once a year for me as well. And yeah. I would just back then be- before I had my twelve inch, I would just buy a new set and struggle setting them, and and then I got my twelve inch, and I was like, you know what, this is getting expensive now, so I bought the the honing guide on Amazon, and you can do two of them at once. Um, it worked. So okay. tried sharpening them. It was okay. Yeah. I've used it's probably them.
1: again user error, guy. Let me ask you: with those disposable blades, where on the Dewalt, where you flip them and and basically get two uses out of one set of blades, how how often were you having to flip? About how much life would you get out of them?
2: I have no idea. Yeah, <clears throat> the reason I say that is because when I bought my Dewalt four post, I never ever used the regular straight knives in it. Uh, at the same time, I bought that. I bought a Sheerluck's head. When I first got the thing, the first thing I did was take out the old head and put the SheLux head in. Mm. So I never even used the the original drum knives. with the knives on them. Yeah.
0: Well, okay. There you yeah. go. So,
2: who's got the next question?
0: I'm up next. This is from All Scott right. Adams. Just watched an episode of Woodsmith Shop on my local PBS channel. They were making a white oak gentleman's dresser and used a gel varnish for the finish. I've never heard of this before, and I was wondering if any of you guys have used it before. They did not identify the maker, the make, or the model of the product, but Old Masters is one of their sponsors, so I suspect it may have come from them. Thanks, love the show. Uh, So from my understanding, and you guys can correct me, uh, but gel varnish is essentially the same as like a gel stain, but without the pigments. Uh, basically, it's it's a thickened wiping varnish that's designed to be wiped on and off of the wood. And you're going to get a, depending on the, the brand, I'm just speaking about General Finishes here, a satin sheen. Uh, general Finishes has a product called Gel Top Coat, and they claim that their satin gel varnish is going to be a little bit glossier than the other satins that they, that they offer. So you want to keep that in mind when you're picking your top coat. Um, I, now I can't speak of the other brands like the old masters. I did do a quick Google and I think they call it gel polyurethane. Uh, and all that I saw was a satin on that. But again, I didn't do too much research on that and, uh, gel varnishes dry quicker or they dry quickly. So you're going to be sure to wipe it on and have another cloth ready to wipe off the excess. And if for some reason you're having some issues with that because of it drying too fast, You can obviously wipe off the excess using naphtha and or mineral spirits if you have to. Um, I've never used them personally, um, and I wanted to take this question to talk to you guys to see if you had, honestly, because what is the uh, appeal to this versus a wiping varnish? Um, And I would love to know what you two think. Have any of you all used it? I'm in
1: the same boat as you, man. I've never used it, so I don't don't really have any opinion because I've never used
0: it uh guy have have you used any gel varnishes no
2: but i i i think i know a couple guys that do and i i didn't i just saw this question tonight so i didn't have a chance to reach out to them and ask them i think the advantage to a gel varnish versus let's say you know there's there's a regular poly you know varnishes is, everything is a varnish that's a top coat first of all a varnish is not a particular thing. Danish oil is a varnish. Poly is a varnish. Shellac is a varnish. Everything is a varnish. Let's say you went with a, a regular polyurethane.
0: The application, just regular wipe or brush poly?
2: Regular brush poly. Regular poly. Full strength poly. And you're putting it on there. That stuff you have to be very careful with because it'll drip and run and do all kinds of crazy crap. You can't go back, you should not go back over it after I mean I had a lot of experience with that stuff. And you have to you basically put it on a flat level surface,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: trying to do a vertical surface with it. You're really asking for trouble. And when the wiping varnishes or wiping polys, you know, came out like a like an armor seal as a wiping poly. And the, all that is is they take polyurethane and it's thinned about 50%.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. with
2: mineral spirits or naphtha. Um, the advantage that is you just wipe it on and you wipe it off again, but it can still run and stuff. Mm. I think the advantage of the gel varnish.
1: doesn't run. I mean,
2: it, it doesn't run. Yeah.
1: Makes so
2: sense. if you're putting it on a vertical surface, you really don't have to worry that much about it dripping and getting all over the place. Mm-hmm. You can put it on and then wipe it off pretty quickly if that's what it's designed to do is like a wiping varnish. But that's the yeah. only reason I can see of it being a, 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 an advantage to being a gel. If there's another advantage to it, I, I, I've i never heard of one.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. the There's plenty. I, well, not plenty. I guess the only downside is you're stuck with just the one sheen. Uh, using General Finishes gel top coat of a satin. Something that that I would bring to the table on that I've never used it I always just apply a wiping varnish really really thin so hopefully that helps um, not sure if we gave you too much information on it other than just uh, give it a try and see what you think so I think that is the uh, the answer to that one what about you Hui? what's your next question this is from
1: James Lunsford and he's one of our new patrons thank you James uh, enjoy your program very much. How did three intelligent, talented young men? Yes, guy, you are younger than I.
2: Oh, it must be an old fart.
1: Yeah, yeah. Living so far apart geographically, ever become close friends? Oh, that's, you know, close friends? Uh, uh, My question is, I would like to add a good jointer to my modest woodworking shop. But due to space constraints, a floor model would not fit at this time. And a six inch model may not always be wide enough. Have been looking online at the model, and he gives this model number 401808. Anyway, it's a joiner uh, made by this, this company called Q Tech Tool. I think there's actually a, an office in Memphis. Any thoughts on this or suggestions on a different jointer? I am retired from a carrier in massage therapy now, living in Uncle Sam's monthly donations and enjoying my hobby. So uh, I, I looked into this model. And it looks to me like it's very similar to a model that I've seen before, which requires that the top of the machine or the beds in the machine actually be removed in order to adjust the jointer beds. And it's it's actually kind of it's kind of weird. Um, my a friend of mine, a close friend of mine, I actually tried to help him align the jointer beds on a on a similar similar model. I think it it was either this one or they're a six-inch model. And it was a little bit of a difficult task to adjust. It, it, uh, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, that's right. A little bit problematic to actually adjust the beds. Now, I think it would be a perfectly fine machine if you're doing shorter pieces. But, you know, having having a longer joint, a better, of course, is always beneficial. But, you know, you obviously have the constraints of a smaller shop. All I would suggest is just look into how those beds are adjusted. If if it becomes a little bit cumbersome to actually adjust those beds, I think maybe I'd look into another model. Although it might be a case that you know all benchtop models of this style or of this type are adjusted in that way. And just adjusting the beds itself is just going to be a relatively cumbersome thing to do. I don't have any experience with the machine other than the fact that, you know, my my friend had brought it over and asked me to help him with it a little bit, and we kind of had a hard time. And I think he ultimately went back to Memphis where he bought it and had the guys there actually adjust it for him. Uh, but I had a hard time adjusting it, and so, and so does he, so did he. So that's about all I can add about that. What what are your guys' thoughts on these smaller benchtop models? I mean, given given the fact that James really is limited on on floor space,
0: I'm looking at the link for that. And, you know, I had a Porter cable that was just like this, a six inch. Mm -hmm. It was a nightmare to align the beds. The fence is real small. So from end to end, without the extension uh, extensions on the ends of the tables, you're looking at 34 inches and it's about 64 pounds for the, for the whole entire joiner. I just think you're going to struggle running anything decently large over that. Like we said, if it were me, I would spend that 549 and then go with some sort of planer um, sled to flatten to flatten my lumber and then you know using only the planer instead of spending 550 on something like this unless they have a really good return policy and you're close to them mm-hmm. i don't think i would i wouldn't risk it i understand you, you know, you're limited in space i would try for a very long time to to make a planer sled to flatten lumber before going with something something this small again it could be great i, I just can't i don't know i've not used one that's just my opinion on the matter.
2: So, just so the folks at home know, this is an eight inch benchtop joiner with carbide. Spiral
1: cutter head. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Spiral cutter head. Yeah. Yep. Um, Just like you guys, I had a, or I said to you like Sean, at one point in time, I did have a benchtop joiner. It was a four inch one mm-hmm. with little tiny dinky ones. And I had that for a, About two or three months. And I said, this thing is a waste of my time. (laughs) So I built, I had a, at that time I had a 12 inch lunchbox planer Mm -hmm. and I had a a contractor style table saw. I just used, I I built a, 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 as Sean said, I built a sled for my planer to face joint my boards. And for the jointing, I did it on the table saw. Yeah. I mean, I, I just used a, a sled, uh, a long or a, or a rip guide, and and did that, and then I, I I trued it up with a hand plane, which worked fine for me, to be honest with you. I, I can't I can't make any recommendations one way or the other on this particular model because I've never used it. Sure. But a sixty pound eight inch joiner, you kind of got to worry about.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: You got to question it.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of money to risk.
2: Yeah, it's it's 500 bucks, give or take. Mm-hmm. If I was going to spend $500, I mean, you can buy a, a nice used 6-inch or 8-inch jointer yeah. on on eBay or Craigslist and and get away with that before something like this. I, 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 if I was going to recommend one way or the other, I would recommend not getting this machine. Mm-hmm based on my own experience and just looking at it and seeing what it is and the cost of it. I mean, even if it's a bench top model, I mean, your bench still takes up floor space. It's six of one half dozen, the other. Yeah. I mean, you can get away with not having a joiner in your shop.
1: Yeah, if definitely. You've got,
2: yeah. If you've got a thickness planer, a
1: table and saw, a hand
2: board. plane and a table saw, yeah. you're, you're golden. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would be my suggestion.
1: Or, or you can, just like you said, I mean, a used jet, you know, old blue jet, man, they're 500 bucks right there. Yeah. Definitely more than 65 pounds. That's for sure. I know that because I, I owned one at one point. Anyway, I think that answers the question for the most part. So
2: yeah, hopefully it does.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Guy, I think we hand it off to you, man.
2: All right. This one comes from John. Wasn't the last one I got from a guy named John too?
0: Uh, no, Joey. Yeah, no, Joey.
2: Joey. John, this one's from John. And he says, always enjoy listening to your podcast while working in my shop. I recently saw Hui using a router set to cut cope and stick joints for some cabinet doors. I have a similar set by Freud that I have used to cut many similar joints over the past several years. My set has not been cutting very well the last few times I used it. So I took it to have professionally sharpened. It's no better now than before, maybe worse. Should I try having them sharpened again, or is this just the nature of the beast? Keep up the good work on the podcast, John. So I thought about this a little while, and you know, I've 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 had multiple. I still have multiple cope and stick joint bit sets, and I've used one of them quite a bit and it took years for it to get dull yeah and even when it got dull i sent it away and had it sharpened and when i got it back it cut like new reading this i don't think that they sharpened them correctly Hmm. that's my thoughts on it because if they were working and then over time they didn't they started the, the the quality of the cuts started to deteriorate and things like that and they started to burn and do all kinds of weird stuff. That's a sign of bits not being sharp.
1: Yep. yep. You
2: get it sharpened, they should be good as new. Mm-hmm. Period. End of story. They should be good as new. And for it not to be cutting any better than it was at its worst or even worse than, yeah, there's something screwy there. Yep. And that's my opinion. I could be I, I could be mistaken.
1: I don't think I have an opinion other than what you have. Uh, to be honest, I've actually never had a set of router bits sharpened because I have two sets of cope and stick joint bits. I've had them, I don't know, maybe about three or four years and I've never had to get them sharpened. They cut almost just as good as the day that I got them. So I can't really say that I know the difference between you know, a set of bits that aren't sharpened and ones that are, I guess I just hadn't gotten to that point yet or used them enough. But I mean, I've never gotten anything back from my sharpener and it not cut better than when I sent it in.
0: I mean, I'm just going to agree with you guys. If (laughs) it worked great once doesn't work good now, what else could it be? I mean, I'm saying we're trying to think, is there feed rate? Is it grain direction? Like what else could it possibly be? Have you tried, uh, multiple species, different types of wood. Putting a backer board in there, like what is not cutting well, I guess is going to be my first question. That he kind of didn't didn't let us know. Is it burning? Is it tear out? Yeah, send it back or go find another another place to sharpen it. And um, if it worked good at one point, it should work well after sharpening.
2: Freud makes a quality product. Uh, by myself, I prefer side, but Freud makes a quality product, and I've. Had some, I still have some Freud bits that I've had for, you know, 15 years that still work fine. I mean, it takes a, I mean, for you to wear out a cope and stick joint bit set, you'd have to be doing a lot of cabinet drives. I mean, it's almost production shop level where you've got to worry about being sharpened after, you know, six months or so. But even in, if a couple of years, I mean, you'd have to making a lot of doors for that thing to be not, or need to be sharpened again.
0: Yeah. And he says it's, it's no better. And it may even be worse now than before. So it sounds so like yeah, a bad sharpening that, job.
2: Yeah. It sounds like, it a sounds
1: like something dream. something went wrong. Yeah.
2: There, there's something screwy there. Um, there's a lot of good services out there that there, there may be somebody local that can do it, but, um, I know, like, uh, I usually send my blades, my, my saw blades to Forest. Mm-hmm. And I've sent them router bits in the past, too, and they do a good job there. They're the only people I've sent my stuff to be sharpened, other than a, a few local guys here and there. Yeah. I, I don't know how deep we can go on this, John. I would probably say that it's my best guess that these were not sharpened correctly if they're not cutting correctly.
1: You could maybe go to another sharpener and get a second opinion on it. You know, might be worth looking into, but.
0: Okay. All right. This last question is from Tony new to woodworking. Love the podcast. Learn a ton from you guys so far. My question is about determining moisture in wood when purchasing. I've heard you guys talk a lot about needing to sticker wood to let it dry before beginning a project, but how does a person know when choosing pieces from their local dealer what their moisture level is. Does everyone just take a moisture meter with them when selecting boards, or is there some way to know which pieces will allow me to start on a project sooner than later? If I want to build a table, for example, I don't want to have to wait two years for my lumber to dry before starting the project. Again, I'm new to woodworking, so apologies if this seems elementary. Tony. Now, Tony, I'm speaking purely from a hobbyist perspective on this, but I typically stay with the same two or three vendors for my wood, so I know what to expect. I've been using them for years and years and years what they have told me as far as the drying process has been accurate so i trust what they say now if for some reason i need to get something special and i have to go online to places like craigslist to find other people selling close to me you know i just ask the questions about when it was cut how it was dried and if it wasn't dried how long has it been and i also ask how and where it was stored while it was drying if it wasn't kiln dried I mean, I don't personally take a moisture meter with me to buy the lumber because first of all, I've got a crappy meter and it's probably not very accurate. Um, You know, it's kind of a gamble, uh, but if I'm buying something special, I'm typically not buying a whole lot of it. So I'm just going to trust what they say. If it doesn't, when I go there to buy it, it doesn't look right. If it's twisted, if it's got a crazy warp or something like that, I'll pick the better looking boards and then I'm just going to have to go off of what they say when I get home, check the moisture level and just let it acclimate until it gets close to the other lumber. And if for some reason, you know, I have to wait a whole lot longer because the wood is uh, wetter than they said, then I'll just not buy lumber from them again and, and just stick to my same two or three vendors. But from a hobbyist perspective, I try to stick to the same two or three that have uh, treated me well. And the lumber is exactly as they say, uh, Mm -hmm. and they know what they're doing. And um, I think that moisture meter is definitely something that you should invest in if you're going to, you know, start going around to different sources for your lumber to get a feel for the kind of product that they're going to give you, and uh, you'll figure out who you who you'll stick with that that's treated you well after you buy from a few places.
1: Yeah, sometimes you make a couple of mistakes before you figure it out, but you learn pretty quick, though. I'm the same way, Sean. I've I've got three sources locally that I use, four sources locally that I use. One is a little bit further than local, but. Still within you know re- reasonable distance. I've bought many times and not really had issues with moisture content being above ten percent. When it comes to ordering online, I've ordered online from Erian and Belforest. All have been both have been oh excuse me and Woodworkers Source. All three have been good experiences. And I actually did check the moisture content of those boards because they were coming from another area. But for the most part, you know, after acclimating to my shop for a week or so uh, hasn't never had really an issue with that but no I don't uh, if it's local and and if it's uh, the sources that I normally use and that I trust I don't I don't take a moisture meter with me
2: what about you guy yeah I, I don't take a moisture meter with me either I rarely I have a moisture meter it's like a cheap 30 40 dollar one mm-hmm. I use it very rarely mm-hmm. I mean for the most part when I buy Lumber. I buy lumber from one specific source regularly, which is a lumber yard.
1: mooter's mm-hmm. paw, right?
2: No. Oh. Frank Miller Lumber.
1: Oh, okay. Motor
2: Paws in Dayton, Ohio, or xenia Ohio, which is near Dayton. That's a good three hours from here, two and a half hours from here. <clears throat> I buy from a place in in Indiana called Frank Miller Lumber Company. They're one of the largest lumber mills this side of the Mississippi, and they're one of the largest supplier of quarter lumber in the, in the world. Anyways, they deliver to me for free. Mm-hmm. So I buy from them a lot because I don't want to get in my car and drive somewhere and get lumber, number one. Uh, number two is they know me there. I've been buying lumber there for over 20 years. They know what I'm doing. They know I'm buying, I'm building furniture. I'm not making flooring. I'm not doing millwork. I'm making furniture, and they know this. And they they're pretty good about shipping me pretty good lumber. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't have to worry about a lot of sap wood and crap like that. So they do a very good job for me. <clears throat> as far as the the moisture content goes, the other source I buy from is multiple sources. And those are local sawyers. Mm -hmm. In which case, again, I don't bring a moisture meter because it just doesn't matter. If I'm Mm. buying from a local sawyer, I'm bringing it back in my shop. I'm not going to use it for at least six months to a year. Right. It's going to sit in my shop and acclimate. Mm -hmm. And as far as when I get stuff from the, the, the lumber yard, I don't even know what it's at but i I usually let it sit a week in my shop before i cut it and the only time i sticker anything tony is when i've done the initial milling on it i'll sticker it Mm -hmm. for that project Mm -hmm. and i'll I'll let it sit for a day minimum overnight until i mill it again to its final dimensions so when when you get it yeah so
1: when you get it from uh a local Sawyer who you know could be whoever. You, you don't you don't sticker it when you bring it
2: in. No, because I don't I don't I've got a, a vertical, vertical lumber rack. I don't I don't have any okay. place to sticker any wood.
0: Yeah, yeah yeah same here. Okay. So
2: um, it just gets stacked. And I I when I buy lumber like that, I usually buy a hundred to one hundred and fifty board feet at a time. I pull all the lumber out of my lumber rack. Put the the stuff I've just purchased all the way in the back. Mm -hmm. and then put the other wood over the top of it. And I don't usually run out. I usually have, let's say if I'm going to go buy some walnut from a local guy, Mm -hmm. and I know I'm going to buy 100, 150 board feet, that means I still have 50 to 75 board feet left Mm
1: -hmm.
2: of my personal stash, waiting six months before I use some newly purchased wood from a, a local sawyer isn't a big deal,
0: right? So you might have to build up a stash. My question is for you guys. So let's let's since he's new, definitely find a decent uh, moisture meter and get some lumber in your shop where you're going to be working on it to figure out a stabilized moisture readout for your for your shop. Um, sure. What yeah. do you guys wait on before you start working with the piece? What is the the moisture content level typically? A rough ballpark, obviously. Don't know. So you don't check it at all. Nope, never. So Very rarely. You don't very, use the moisture meter at all? Okay. Wait, nope. what about you? About 9%. Okay. About yeah, 9%. I'm right around 8 to 10 uh, when I use mm-hmm. mine.
2: I never trust my moisture meter because it's a cheapie. Mm-hmm. So when I do use it, I'll take a – let's say I want to check the moisture content of a piece of cherry. I'll take a piece of cherry that I've had in my shop I know I've had my shop for you know a couple of years in my wood pile, yeah. And I'll check that and see what the number is, yeah. and then I'll go to the piece I want to use and see what the number on that is. The number may say fifty three, but as long as it's fifty three on both, okay. Yeah. I really don't know, and that's why I said before. I don't. You asked me what what moisture? I don't know what it is. My my thirty forty dollar moisture meter isn't going to give me a real number, anyways.
1: Right, right.
2: So I don't know what it is, and that's what I meant before. I Was I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I don't look at the specific density charts. I don't, I don't, you know, because it's got to be set to the temperature in the shop. And I eh, don't worry about any of that stuff. Yeah, I just check yeah. it against a piece of wood that I have and use that as a baseline number.
0: Yeah. So say you didn't have that be, that baseline piece of wood, how would you determine? And being a greenhorn, <sighs> that's kind of what I'm trying to help him with to get started. Yeah, he doesn't have that baseline. I
2: if you don't have a baseline and you're buying lumber from a let's say a, a a source where you're not comfortable with let's say a local local sawyer not a not a something that has not been kiln dried i guess is the best way for me to say that yeah if something's been kiln dried you should be okay yeah if it hasn't been kiln dried i say regardless Unless that thing has been, ask the person you're buying it from, has this been sitting inside for the last, for, you know, if it's an inch thick, has this been sitting inside for a year? No, I cut it three weeks ago. Well, guess what? You're going to have to put it in your shop and it's mm-hmm. going to have to sit there for a year. Yep. And I think without buying a moisture meter, that's the best way to do it. It's just ask the person you bought it from. Has this been sitting, you know, where where, where I get my stuff from the local guys, that stuff was cut some cases two years ago, but it's sitting outside, Mm -hmm. you know, with a piece of uh, tin over the top of it Mm -hmm. that's exposed to the elements. Yeah. All I know is that when I bring that stuff in, I'm not going to use it for a year
0: Mm -hmm.
2: or at least six months.
0: Right. Yeah. You're talking about the, the wet lumber that hadn't been kiln dried? Yep. Yeah, yeah,
2: yep. If it's if it's coming from a lumber mill or from a local dealer or let's say like a woodcraft or a Rockler or something like that, that stuff's dry, man. Yeah, yeah. You should be able to. Have, you should be able to put it in your shop, and within a week or two, you should it'll have acclimated enough, and you should be okay.
1: Moisture in wood drops below twenty percent relatively fast, but getting it below fifteen percent takes a relatively long period of time. In order to get there and oftentimes you either have to get it into a kiln or put it indoors for a good period of time to get it below that point so that you can actually work with it and it's not going to you know warp and twist and move all over the place when when yeah. you start cutting it
2: I guess, I guess the best advice we can give you tony without getting i mean we're starting to get way yeah. off beaten path and yeah. way too granular and i think it's just going to confuse the heck out of you like I said, if you're getting it from a a known reputable lumber yard and you know it's kiln dried, you're fine. Mm-hmm. You should be fine within a week of you getting it in your own building. Right. If it's if it's if it's not kiln dried, I'd give it at least six months. If it's regular four quarter or five quarter lumber, eight quarter, it may have to sit for a year before you use it.
0: Yeah, I recommend when you're first starting out to just stick with Kill and Drive for a while until yeah. you get to understand everything and go to your local, like you're saying, Rockler Woodcraft, pick some up to get an idea of what it should be in your shop. So hopefully that helps. Let's uh, move it right along and let's talk about what we have going on in our shops since the last episode. Uh, let's see who wants to go first. How about Hui? what do you got going on?
1: yeah, so I just finished the linen cabinet medicine cabinet for my bathroom remodel, which is kind of funny because uh, we're actually about to go to contract on a new construction, a new home uh, tomorrow. <laughs> so we were doing the renovation really because the uh, the flooring in the bathroom was was starting to rot uh, due to the tiles leaking in the shower. So I, I replaced all the cabinets in there, uh, the vanity and whatnot, and it looks much better. Uh, the other thing that I've been doing is I just finished veneering a couple of panels that will become an entryway bench. Uh, I've got one more panel that has to be done, but for the most part, that's done and uh, they came out really nice. I actually used uh, urea resin glue for the first time. Before that, I've been using uh, that uh, like a Unibond one type glue, and uh, this uh, was the DAP Weldwood glue Mm -hmm. uh, and it was it was really easy to use how about you guy what do you got going on
2: not much um let's see since the last time we talked i've really gotten much done i've 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 been doing some remodel stuff in the house yeah it's really not worth talking about so uh all i know is i'm ready to go back to work Mm. which is monday Mm -hmm. thank the lord so what about you sean
0: I finished the hall table, uh, got it delivered, and as I was walking out, brought back an old blanket chest that I made several several years ago. out of a walnut for them to uh, refinish. Way back when, when I built it, I made the mistake of uh, applying a wiping varnish on the inside, which of course you don't do on blanket chests. So mm. now I have to refinish it with uh, most likely either a shellac or some sort of... Uh, water-based, poly, probably shellac, uh, because it, it's causing the blankets and stuff to smell, which is a uh, big mistake.
2: Smell like what?
0: It's just a really, really awful smell um, because of the, cause I used the wiping oil-based wiping varnish on the inside. So I'm going to refinish that with shellac, probably, and uh, set up the bandsaw that I got. I just got it set up and uh, just finished the first video on that that I'm going to be... Releasing on my second YouTube channel to show the assembly of it. I'm pretty happy with it so far. Night and day difference from the other bandsaw. And uh,
2: so is that? It's a 17 inch.
0: Yeah, it's um, 17 inch, 2.5 kilowatt, whatever power motor, which is like 3.3 horsepower or something. If you do some use some online calculators to determine that, it's it's really really nice. I'm happy with it.
2: Good, sweet.
0: So, I uh, think that will do it for this show. Please remember the podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So, if you have questions and we need your questions because we're running low on our spreadsheet here, send those into uh, the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com. Or don't forget, you can DM us through Instagram at life. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. What about you? Where can you be found? Alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are there. Guy?
2: Guyswoodshop.com.
0: Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Later. Later, guys. See you.